Okay, did everyone have a good lunch? Chick-fil-A, good. It's only the only thing you can say about them, good. And godly. Okay, well, let's just kind of recap a little bit what we've been talking about. Uh, I did bring a few books with me. Uh, I brought a book on um, uh, the ancient word of God, which talks about the manuscripts, like we talked about the first session. And then... Um, uh, a book called The Ancient Church Fathers. Those of you that know me or have looked at my books at all, I usually have the word ancient in there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, my idea is the earliest part of something. And so the Church Father book will tell you the disciples of the apostles, what they taught on basic doctrines, and when things began to change. So again, it really helps. Uh, you don't really learn anything new, but you know that what you think is correct and begin to know where things change. It really helps. I also brought a few of the um, um, ancient prophecies revealed. I take 500 biblical prophecies and put them in the order of fulfillment. So you can go through the Old, uh, Old Testament times, uh, the hun- several hundred that Jesus fulfilled, and then uh, 20 or so, th- or so through the Middle Ages, and there's been the 50-some since Israel's come back. And then we map out some of the ones that will be fulfilled in the near future. There's about 80-some during the tribulation period dealing with the Antichrist and those things. So hopefully it helps put those in order. Again, mainly because we have a Bible that teaches us the way of salvation, and it teaches us, uh, it proves itself by accurate prophecy. There's no prophecies in the Quran or the Buddhist scriptures, the Hindu scriptures, anything like that. I know a lot of Wiccans that like to talk about being able to tell the future, but I noticed no, none of them have ever won the lottery, so. <laughs> it's amazing to see what's going on with Israel. Okay, and then also uh, the last book is um, that we brought with us, just a few, uh, Demonic Gospels. It's an explanation of the Gnostic Gospels. So what we've learned so far today is that we look at the scriptures, uh, it proves itself by prophecy. There are critical text manuscripts. If you're talking about the New Testament uh, Greek, there's critical text, and then there's the normal received text. The critical text is the received text, but with pieces cut out. We know it's cut out not because, rather than the, the received text being added to, because we have early church fathers that quote those verses. Uh, for instance, I was doing a study on fasting. I don't remember what translation I was using, but I, I decided to uh, go back and see, take, use the word for fast, take out everything that is we were shipwrecked and we were fasting, meaning starving, and just look at those that uh, were um, Jewish like Yom Kippur ceremony where you're supposed to fast and those things, dwindle it down to the few verses on fasting. I was trying to decide whether Christians should fast or not. And it all boiled down to a handful of scriptures, about five of them that talked about fasting. And I was looking in this one Bible, and I was really surprised to learn that every single one of those had been removed. And I looked it up. It's because the earliest manuscripts don't have that. And so I thought, well, that's cool. Don't have to fast. Of course, I wonder how it got in there. And then, like I always do, it's like, hmm, earliest scriptures, 350 A.D. I wonder if I go back to the church fathers at 250. I wonder if they'll quote any of those. I have to fast. (laughs) Yes, they're quoted. 
Matter of fact, I think just about every scripture that's, I don't know, let me put it this way. I don't know of a, of a passage in scripture where you have a script that has more that that's not quoted by the early church fathers. I don't know of anything that's been added. Okay. Except the Apocrypha, but that's a whole book, whole series of books. But that being the case, we looked at the, the manuscripts, the prophecies. It makes it very, very clear. And again, what we said is to have a good TR-based Bible, like a King James or a New King James, something like that. Uh, if you have a computer, something like eSword or the Word, they can take any one of those and look at the Greek and the Hebrew, and you can study for yourself. You're just out of luck, so to speak, if I can use that term, uh, if you're missing part of the verses. You need to have the whole verses so that you can look them up. So then what we ended with is looking at the church fathers, seeing that they taught everything that we believe. Uh, several of them uh, were pre-tribulational rapturists. They all believed in the, the uh, upcoming seven-year tribulation and a literal antichrist that the Jews would return to Jerusalem and build their temple according to the prophecies. We've seen some of those come to pass. Uh, Irenaeus, one of the guys we were talking about before, actually said that um, all those things are literal. The seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist, anybody who doesn't think they're literal, that they're symbolic of something else, is an immature Christian. I thought that was interesting. He's not saying they're not a Christian. They're just confused. And uh, somebody that we would want to talk to, to try to, to try to explain the scriptures with. He didn't recommend that you have them teach in your church because if they get confused on something as simple as the second coming, what else are they confused on? And that's a very, very good point. So we see a lot of things like that in the church. The church always taught you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by works. Christ did it all on the cross. You are um, a sinner. You're destined for hell. And you have to get saved. And God has made a way. So that's the gospel. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But today, or to, what I want to talk about now is uh, these Gnostic gospels. We saw that the early church taught that there were four gospels. One history book, some epistles of Paul, and then a few other uh, books. And that's what's in the New Testament. It's always been that way from the beginning. I thought it's interesting if you think about it, even in Scripture, Peter says Paul, Paul's writings, some people rest to their own destruction. And he says that about Paul's writings. They rest his writings as they do the other Scriptures. So even in their day, while they're still alive, they knew that Paul's writings were inspired. And I think that's amazing. That is a specific gift. If you're sick and I lay hands on you and you suddenly get well, that's the gift of healing. Nobody really knows what that's like until you experience it. The gift of being able to write a book of the Bible, to be a channel through the Holy Spirit, to be used that way. Forty people, 40 human beings in our history have known what that's like to actually write. That's just amazing. So if you think about it, it's a special gift, and Paul and Peter knew when they were writing certain things that this is inspired, and they proved themselves by prophecy and by miracles. So when we look at that, now if we know that there's always been only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where do these other things come from? We've got the Gospel of Mary, you've probably heard of the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas. Uh, several years ago when I was in seminary, the Gospel of, I think it was Thomas, was the really big one. 
we had that Jesus seminar, and they decided to go through and map out which uh, verses uh, in the New Testament Jesus probably wrote or actually said, probably didn't say, may or may not have, definitely did not say. And they were trying to figure these things out. And it was interesting that in the seminar, they, they proposed looking to, to prove the whole point, five separate Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas. And it's like, wow, where do they come up with this stuff? But so that stuff happens not too long ago, about a year, year and a half back. Somebody said they discovered the Gospel of Judas. And we have the Gospel of Judas. It's, it's in the Church Father archives. They mention who wrote it, why it was written, those things. It's always been around. These guys act like newly discovered. Nobody's ever seen this before. And, of course, they only discovered in the one fragment about half of it. Now, what a lot of cults will do will take something that's legitimate and add to it. So if I take um, something about one of the Gospels and I go back and either find real documents giving you more information or fake ones and then insert my stuff in the middle of it, uh, it proves to be right. There was, for instance, uh, a document on the death of Isaiah. Isaiah was sawed in half by order of Manasseh. Okay, so that's an actual document. It's verified in multiple sources. So there was a cult in the first century that took that document, which is legitimate, a word of wisdom from a church father who happened to be named after the prophet Isaiah, a legitimate word of wisdom, put with it, and then inserted their wacky doctrine in the middle. Very, very sneaky. And so those are things you got to watch out for. But, you know, scripture-wise, we know Isaiah wrote Isaiah. There isn't another Isaiah, you know, but so... Those things are fairly easy to pick apart. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of these other Gospels. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948, and basically the Dead Sea Scrolls are copies of Scripture and commentaries and translations and paraphrases and other things. What's interesting, you might hear, and this goes back to, again, how do you define your terms? Some of the people were saying that half of the Dead Sea Scrolls don't match up with the received text. They're different. Like that would be highly unusual for Hebrew, maybe Greek. But when you go look at it, what's the case though? You've got actual copies of scripture, like a book of Deuteronomy, book of Ezra, etc. You've got commentaries. You've got translations from Hebrew to Aramaic to other languages. You've got paraphrases uh, and then other things, community rule and stuff like that. So if you want to lump all those together, it's about half. But if you take out all the scripture where they say it is written and the copies of scripture, they're almost identical. And once in a while, there'll be a scribal error. If you take out the other translations, the other copies, the paraphrases and this stuff. So again, it's, it's interesting. They're not lying to you. All the texts put together show a different text. But you have to understand that if you come to my house... And you look at my library where I have my Bibles and my commentaries. I've got a section over in the corner called cults. And I have cultic Bibles. Now, if you didn't know me and there was an earthquake and a thousand years later somebody dug up my library, you might be thinking like, man, that guy was weird. <laughs> well, no, I just like to study things. I don't necessarily believe every single word in every book in my library. But I want my books in my library for reference. Same with the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
So, again, we can look at that and see that all these things are accurate. Now, later on, remember, remember we talked about the church fathers, and they said that these heretics rose up, started making opposite um, gospels. Uh, we said that Marcion is, was the one that made the gospel of Paul. Uh, and there's all these other gospels. Uh, that's their story. And for the longest time, it was... Well, you know how Christians are. A little sect gets together, or anybody that for that matter, and they destroy all the opposing views and create this history. Well, that was fine and dandy up until the 50s when the Nagamati Library was discovered in Egypt. And so those are the Gnostic Gospels, actual copies of the Gnostic Gospels written by Gnostics, much like the Dead Sea Scrolls were there for a few thousand years, or a couple of thousand years. Paul says in Galatians 1, Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, I will say again, if any man preach any other gospel than what you have received, let him be accursed. And that word for accursed is anathema. One of the strongest Greek words. It means literally damned by God to hell. It is an extremely serious thing. So if anybody perverts the gospel, we're not supposed to pay any attention to them. Now, these gospels, once they were found, we look at them. We look at what the church fathers said about them. They're pretty much the same. So now, even if you're a skeptic and you don't like Christians and you hate church fathers, you have to admit they didn't lie. The, the books have been found. So we want to look at this. And just to give you an idea, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the legitimate four Gospels. Now, the Gnostic Gospels, I didn't, I'm not going to go over all of them because there's lots of them. But there's the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Truth. Those are some of the major ones. And I say major because the larger portion is existent. Some of them are, are messed up or missing pieces. So to understand this, we always compare things together. So let's go back and look at what the Gospel itself is, right? The Gospel and the Bible says that there is and always has been and always will be one God, right? There's not 12, there's not 30, we're not evolving into gods. And Isaiah made it very clear. There always has been and always will be just one. And there isn't any other God other than me. Very, very clear. So there's only one triune God. We understand the concept of the Trinity from Scripture. We do not evolve into gods. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of, of Eden and lost their immortality. That's just part of the basic gospel. Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity, incarnated to live a perfect, sinless life, die on the cross, and that would pay for the sin penalty for our sins. So we have to die and go to hell because we're born sinners. It's not really our fault that we're born that way, but it doesn't change what is. We cannot fellowship with God when we have sin, and we're racked with sin. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay for that. So that that can be rectified. So all we have to do is accept him as our savior. To get the free gift of eternal life. And we try to do the best we can do. 
We still have the sin nature. We still make mistakes, but we try our best. We fall into sin. Somebody that's an alcoholic will fall into drunken states once in a while because they're addicted. But they don't say, oh, well, I'm an alcoholic and go out and practice it. They try not to. And then the Holy Spirit helps them. But this is the basic concept of the gospel. We're sinners. We're all destined for hell because of what Adam and Eve did. We're their descendants. And God made a way out of that situation. We do not reincarnate. We resurrect. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 15. You, you can't believe, you can't be a Christian and not believe in the physical resurrection of the body. If you think you're spiritual or you reincarnate or something else like that, that's not Christian doctrine. And we do not practice sorcery. We didn't talk a whole lot about that, but when you go through and you look at, you remember Deuteronomy, it says that uh, when the children of Israel enter the land of Canaan, don't do the Canaanite practices. Don't become a Canaanite wizard, necromancer, diviner, um, all those things. There's like 10 different things listed. When you go back and you study the ancient pre-flood religion, and you can get this information from the old rabbis, uh, what that was like, what they did, and then you come out and you look at the Canaanite practices, they're all different, but they all have one thing in common, and that is some sort of a practice of meditation. And it always leads to the same thing. When you're a Buddhist meditating or any of the other religions that meditate, somewhere along the line you get this epiphany, if I can call it that, and you just kind of realize that I am God. God is in everything, and we're all here, and we're it, and that's it. That's all there is. Meditation somehow does that to you. The, the kind of meditation where you blank out your mind. Now, biblically, in the, like at least Old English, when it talks about meditating on the scriptures, that means I read it, I study it, I think about it, I take guesses, I go to the library, I study it, try to figure it out. I'm meditating on this problem. I'm going to try to figure it out. Modern meditation you can think of as like TM, where you sit, you meditate, you try to blank your mind out, and then whatever comes in, whatever vision you might have, would be something cool. We call that demonic activity. And that's a sin. And this, the rabbis were clear for centuries. That's not how that happens. As a matter of fact, we could go through the ancient church fathers, and there's a section on there, the gifts of the Spirit. They make it very, very clear. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you have a moment of clarity, a real one. And it's just like, I know that I know. And you're quiet, you know, and you talk, and you have a boldness, and you talk about those things. The guy that falls down on the floor and, and flaps his arms and drools and almost chokes and makes animal sounds, that's demonic. And today we have this mixture of not, and we see it all over. But so it's very, very clear uh, all the way through church history, those things happen. By the way, the church fathers said that the gifts of the Spirit would continue until the rapture. That was the common teaching, until that which is perfect has come. That's their opinion. They could be wrong, because it's not Scripture, but that's the consistent teaching of the early church. Um, so we don't practice sorcery, which is contemplative prayer, any kind of meditation, whatever you want to call it. But meditation is not right. You don't sit down and stare at an idol until it moves. You know, you keep looking at it until you see something. That's sorcery. It sounds funny, but it's, it is a very serious ancient thing. And the scriptures in Revelation says the end time church will not repent of its sorcery. 
So it comes in very wholeheartedly. And I've seen that in my lifetime, starting in the mid-60s. It used to be when a Protestant church takes over like a Catholic church, the first thing they do during the Protestant Reformation, destroy all the idols, smash every statue in there, get rid of it. And now you see them bringing in statues. So anyway, so basically that's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, Gnosticism comes along. We talked about Simon Magus. And they, didn't, they tend to start saying that basically there are 30 gods. This is the basic Gnostic teaching. They're called eons or aeons. And these creatures, beings, whatever they are, came down and basically created the material world. They did it by creating angels or lesser gods. And these angels created everything. And so you get the cult of creator angels. Jehovah Witnesses think that Jesus is Michael, the archangel. Uh, again, a Gnostic idea. Angels do not create anything. They're like you and I. They have a lot more power, but they just can't go and there'd be a flower or a man. Only God can do that. Angels do not create. But uh, they said there are basically 30 gods. There's a divine spark in each one of us. And if we learn to use meditation to look at that spark, awaken that concept, we could evolve into godhood. Basically, what we would call New Ageism is Gnosticism. We can evolve into gods by practicing sorcery. That's what it's for. Uh, we, they believed in reincarnation, not physical resurrection. They said Jesus didn't die on the cross, or even if he did, it doesn't mean anything, because that couldn't save anybody. The only way you can be saved is by finding your own godhood. And you save yourself by obtaining the gnosis. And for the longest time, we didn't know specifics about this because the church fathers would talk about this, this thing being wicked. And that type of wickedness you didn't talk about in mixed company. And, you know, we're always going, oh, please do it this one time because I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, they did that a lot. It's like, well, you all know about the, so we won't go there. It's like, please. It was several thousand years ago. I do not remember so uh, you get a lot from the church fathers, but there's several subjects. I really wish they would have went ahead and broke the ethical rules and told us what they were talking about. But now that the Gnostic scrolls are out, we can read exactly what they say. And now we know. So I tend to agree with them. Probably shouldn't mention too many of those things in public. So let's just look at some of these um, and give you an idea. Uh, Gospel of Judas is one. It's probably the one most people are still talking about right now. Uh, the Gospel of Judas teaches that Jesus came to destroy the works of the God of the Old Testament, the evil one that keeps us enslaved. You know, the Gnostics taught that uh, the tyrant God created us, but we didn't have freedom of choice and, and the ability to evolve into godhood. So one of the higher goddesses, Sophia, wanted to give mankind the ability to evolve into gods. So she sent a serpent into the Garden of Eden to show us that we didn't have to obey the tyrant and what to do to become gods. And we followed her, and now we're free to become gods. The evil tyrant sent a flood of water to destroy mankind. Sophia managed to save us. So it's a basic gospel, based on the gospel rather, but it's a very, very twisted logic. So we see this kind of stuff consistently. Judas and Jesus, according to the Gospel of Judas, secretly entered into a pact 
that would cause the crucifixion and thereby destroy man's enslavement to the God of the Old Testament. Once freed, men could become gods. So it's a very weird concept. Matter of fact, it goes on and says that the other apostles probably wouldn't even be saved. Judas and Jesus are because they have that divine spark in them that's been awakened. The gospel of Judas goes on and says that Jesus told Judas that the disciples were mortal. They would never see heaven like most humans were. They're predestined to eternal damnation. Predestined. It's that Calvinistic idea again. But Judas had a soul from the great Seth, who was therefore immortal. They would eventually uh, spend eternity with the eons and the angels and the creative mother spirit. Further, those who are of the seed of Seth would find their way into Gnosis and would then lead to true transcendence. And this sounds like garbledy gook, but we have it in basic uh, New Age philosophy. I read these texts and I think of people that I went to high school with that would probably have said something just like this. You know, I'm not sure what drugs they were on, but Gospel of Thomas is that way. I mean, I can't believe that the guy that wrote the Gospel of Thomas was not on LSD at the time. I mean, talking logs and all that stuff. But again, see, this is the type of thing. You, you know the scriptures. You know what the scripture teaches. So you should understand that. So if the Gnostic Gospels teach a plan, a gospel other than what has been delivered to you through the received text, they are and it should be anathema or damned by God to hell. Either Jesus came and died to pay the penalty. And if we accept that and believe that and confess that we'll have eternal life or not. And if you save yourself through meditation, that's not the gospel. That's incompatible. I see all these, these little signs on the bumper stickers that, you know, the coexist. How can we all coexist when the other guys are trying to kill us? You want to worship an idol in a corner and bow down to a rock, be my guest somewhere else. I'm not going to kill you. I'd, again, I'd like to convert you so you don't die and go to hell. Just amazing. Uh, and also, going back to the idea of prophecy, we've said all the prophecies in the Bible are coming to pass. How many prophecies are mentioned in the Gnostic Gospels? You're right, zero. No prophecies, much like the Quran and a few other books. Well, the Gospel of, of Judas goes on. Actually, here's a quote from Irenaeus, Church Father Irenaeus in his Against Heresies. He said, the Gnostic sect of the, the Cainites maintained that Judas, the traitor, was thoroughly acquainted with these things. And they even produced a fictitious history of this kind, which they call the Gospel of Judas. So again, it's all written in history. You don't have to guess, is the shorter one the good one or the longer one? Go find out what happened. The longer one. Well, how did we get the shorter one? These heretics came along and cut it out. How do you know the church fathers aren't making it up? We found their text 10 years after the Dead Sea Scrolls. It makes sense. The Gospel of Thomas uh, is another one that came out several years ago, and it was really, really big. Again, that's the one. There's a few different versions of it, which leads you to kind of wonder. But uh, again, the talking logs and, and these kind of things are kind of strange. 
But basically, if you go through the Gospel of Thomas, it sounds like Scripture, just some stories that could have very easily happened, a few very weird, nonsensical things. But some of the basic teachings that are clear is that the people have an essence of God in them. Salvation is by finding the light inside of oneself. Women, this, this is interesting, listen to this one. Women can only be saved if they make themselves spiritually male. Sounds like Islam almost. You know, women are no good for anything. Now, don't ask me how you make yourself spiritually male. It's a Gnostic thing. You'll have to ask them because that, that part's not super clear. It did say that Adam came from a great power, not the great power. The Gospel of Thomas goes on and some of the odd sayings uh, that are in there. Where there are three gods, there are gods. Yeah. If you pray, you will be condemned. Well, praying to your God, maybe, but not ours. If you fast, you are sinning. Now, I wonder if that has any connection to the critical text that removed every reference of fasting. Doesn't matter, because church fathers quoted the long versions. 150 years before those scripts were made and they quoted the long version so apparently fasting is a good thing whoever will come to know the father and the mother he will be called the son of the whore it's a famous quote out of the book of Thomas gospel of Thomas the only thing I can think of is if you think God is a father and a mother, you're part of the whore of Babylon. I guess, if you're trying to make truth to it. Gospel of Thomas says, I will destroy this house, house and no one will be able to build it again. I think I know where they're getting that from. When Jesus said, destroy this house and I will raise it up three days later. And they thought he was talking about the temple. Again, they're changing it and making it into something else. About the Gospel of Thomas, Irenaeus says this, The infancy Gospel of Thomas was a work of Gnostics and is a very wicked story. Hippolytus, Irenaeus' disciple who wrote another set of anti-cult books about 30, 40 years later, he said the Gnostic Naazi use the Gospel according to Thomas. So it was created by Gnostics, used by Gnostics to further their teachings. Very interesting. There's a gospel of truth found amongst them. The gospel of truth uh, teaches that Jesus came from the Father, who dwells in the planora, the Gnostic heaven, beyond time and space. He came specifically to destroy ignorance. People are ignorant because they have forgotten that they have a spark of the divine in them. The only way of rediscovering the Father is through the process of mystical experience. True salvation is based on true repentance. Well, I agree on that. But true repentance, their definition is the process through gnosis, 
back to the knowledge of the divine. So meditation, in other words. I say repentance means to recognize there's a right, there's a wrong. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. I've done wrong. I'm sorry, and I'm going to try not to do that again. Seriously try. That's repentance, not meditating. The gospel of truth uh, goes on and says that there are three kinds of people in this world. There are the psychics, the pneumatics, and the hyle. The psychics are those that have the divine spark in them. They are immortal, and they will eventually, one way or the other, return to godhood. Can't be stopped. They are, shall we say, predestined for salvation. There are the pneumatics who have the possibility of becoming gods based on their good works if they use the proper rituals and incantations. Work salvation. We know lots of groups that do that. That's not biblical either. Then there are the hyle. Hyle are people that are so sensual, they have no chance of obtaining any kind of salvation. These are predestined to eternal damnation. Predestined to eternal damnation. Church fathers make it very clear Christians do not believe in fate. Everyone has a chance to be saved. It's all up to you. Jesus did the hard part. You have to accept it. Every single person can have a chance to accept Jesus Christ. The gospel of truth goes on and says, one interesting thing about the gospel is that in addition to the teaching on how to awaken this gnosis or Gnostic meditation, it actually has instructions on how to get through nightmares. Apparently, the first time when you start meditating, you start seeing different images and you start they become very demonic according to this process. It says that uh, there's a specific way that you can get through this nightmare process and it gives a stern warning that gnosis is the only way to salvation. So unless you learn to meditate, you will perish. I think that's interesting. When you go study New Agers today and you get into the Kundalini forces and the yoga and all the other meditations, a lot of times they will talk about the nightmares. It starts to awaken things and you see things that you, you see some really cool lights and stuff, but you also see some things that are really bad. I've also heard from people that have done drugs like LSD. They see some really cool things. I don't think any of it's real, but they see some really nice things. They also have some really bad trips where it's really, really bad. But I think it's interesting how we have this constant concept. The rabbis taught meditation is sorcery. It's forbidden. It's the lie that Satan uses to try to teach you you're becoming gods. It's used in, in drugs, basically. It's used by Eastern meditation. It's used by the New Age. And it was the main method of, or the only method of salvation from Gnostics. And they all talk about how to start it. They all talk about the processes. And they all talk about the nightmares. Really interesting, if you think about it. The Gospel of Truth describes the different kinds of nightmares followers will experience and how they're necessary for attaining the awakening. Once you have attained this awakening, separation from God is not possible. Now, in Against Heresies, Irenaeus said, he quotes a passage from this gospel of truth and says that it was a Valentinian work. The Valentinians were Calvinistic Gnostics. It's hard to say, Calvinistic Gnostics. 
Then we come to the Gospel of Philip, just to give you an idea. The Gospel of Philip teaches that there are five sacraments. I thought that was interesting. In, in the church, you always got saved. If you followed directions and they could tell you were truly saved, then they would baptize you. Then you'd be allowed to take uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. So you could ordinances, sacraments, whatever you want to call them, but there's two of those. There's five according to the Gospel of Philip. There's baptism, chrism, redemption, the bridal chamber, and the Eucharist. But that was interesting. The first sacrament is water baptism. And the Gnostic taught that it's necessary because it erases all original sin. And it begins the process of entering into the spiritual realm. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, Gnostic kind of, or not Gnostic, Roman Catholic concepts. The second sacrament called chrism is where you're anointed with oil, which is called the baptism of light. And that is where the Gnostic received the female Holy Spirit. They thought she was fem or he was feminine. Matter of fact, there is a, <clears throat> a quote by Irenaeus talking about this Gnostic named Marcus, who taught that when uh, he mixed the communion, he would do a special kind of rite. Only he knew how to do this. And it would call down the female Holy Spirit. She would put a drop of her blood in the wine and it would literally become red. And whoever drank the wine then would be filled with the Spirit and be able to prophesy and heal and stuff like that. Some sort of imparting of grace. Sounds like transubstantiation. Now the church father went on to say that the church never taught anything like that. And whoever accepts this kind of demonic doctrine has got to be crack-brained. Actual quote, crack-brained, not right in the head. So, but it, it's amazing to me. I always thought it was funny because I always used to focus on the crack-brained type thing. But if you look at it, anybody who follows such a demonic doctrine has to be crack-brained. Demonic doctrine. Now, Paul says there are at least two demonic doctrines in the end times. Celibacy, you have... You either have to be celibate, or if you are celibate, you'll be closer to God. A vegetarianism, not eating meat. You either have to be a vegetarian to get saved, or you'd be a better one. Either way, it's a good thing to do. And if we add Irenaeus' concept to demonic doctrines, transubstantiation. Where do we find those three demonic doctrines in a particular Christian religion? Transubstantiation, celibacy, and vegetarianism or not eating meat or maybe we should say eating fish on Friday which actually was a Jewish custom but anyway but it's interesting how these things kind of come together I'm not picking on Catholics or anybody in particular I'm just trying to teach the word if anything I'm picking on Gnostics if they happen to match you you should seriously consider doing something about that so um, let's see here. The sacrament of redemption, according to the Gospel of Philip, is initiated into sorcery through Gnostic meditation. The description of this is very similar to what is described with TM. If you've ever went and talked to one of those guys about how do I practice TM, you have to go to an actual yogi, a Hindu guru, and they say it has nothing to do with religion. But you have to bring them some fruit, some flowers, and a white handkerchief. And they have to do this ritual. 
and they tell you, repeat after me. These words mean nothing. They're just sounds. I accept Satan as my Lord. Go ahead and say it. It doesn't mean anything. But they have, they have these words that they say, the mantras. They supposedly don't mean anything, but they actually do, if you know any Sanskrit. Well, anyway. Uh, Hippolytus mentioned in his book on heresies that Marcus taught this kind of baptism, and he called it the baptism of redemption. And he said that he would lay hands on his people. He would give them a certain word or a phrase when he decided that follower is ready to go on to the higher mysteries or if he's dying as a kind of last rites. They're taught to keep this word secret and to even deny that it exists. So it's really interesting. Sounds a lot like Hinduism. The Gospel of Philip goes on and says the fourth sacrament is that of the bridal chamber. Uh, it was important that a male Gnostic and a female Gnostic undergo the rite of the bridal chamber because it was connected, it connected the two in such a spiritual way that cannot be achieved by one person alone, so they taught. All that we really know about the ritual of the bridal chamber is that it was somehow connected with fornication, as you can probably imagine, and astrology. It actually, the way it's described, it kind of, it kind of sounds like the, the tantric Hindu sex magic. Father Irenaeus said this about it in his Against Heresies. Gnostics believe that they have spirits that are emanations from Sophia. This makes them predestined to be saved. It's not a matter if the behavior is good or evil. So the most perfect of them, they call themselves perfect after a while when they get a certain state, the most perfect of them abdict themselves to evil deeds and are in the habit of defiling the women they convert. So if you put these together, you can t pretty much figure out what they're doing in the bridal chamber. <clears throat> to me, it reminds me of all those weird um, movies I used to watch as a kid. You know, the demonic-like movies. Uh, the guy gives his wife a certain drug and, and he takes a certain drug and they draw a circle on the floor and they do a certain incantation, incantation or whatever. Then he tries to get her pregnant and hopefully the baby will have supernatural powers or be one of them or something like that. Kind of sounds like that's what they're talking about. The Gospel of Philip goes on and says that uh, it indicates that the Gospel... Let's see. Yeah. It indicates that the... Uh, ritual of the bridal chamber is the most important one for attaining godhood. The sacrament, sacrament of the bridal chamber is also mentioned in the Gospel of Thomas. You know, the one that they wanted to say is the fifth gospel. In saying 75, it must be entered into by a free man and a virgin. Defiled women, slaves, and animals are not to participate in that rite anyway. The Gospel of Philip goes on and says, A horse sires a horse, a man begets a man, and a god begets a god. It also suggests that the Jesus' love for Mary Magdalene was more than disciple and master. And you've probably seen the stuff on the TV, all the different weird um, stories about that. It's supposed to be more like husband and wife. Uh, it says that he loved Mary more than any of the other disciples, calls Mary his companion and consort, 
and it states that Jesus kissed her often on thee, and then whatever that word was is kind of smudged out. Now, you're supposed to grant each other or greet each other with a holy kiss, which is a kiss on the cheek. And so I don't think it would be logical to say he kissed her on the cheek like he does every other person in the place. This is a little different somehow. Uh, The gospel of Philip also denies Mary, the mother of Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So the virgin birth, it denies that. Uh, They believe that the Holy Spirit is female and two females cannot reproduce. This is a quote from the gospel of Philip. Some have said that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. They are in error. They do not know what they're saying. When did a woman ever conceive by a woman? Mary is a virgin to whom no power ever defiled. So they deny the virgin birth again, which makes me wonder about this morning when we talked about um, the scriptures about the virgin birth, changing it around. Some of those other Bibles did. Here's a quote from the Gospel of Mary. The, uh, it's in fragments, but the existent part of the Gospel of Mary, it begins when the disciples are asking questions and he's just answering, Jesus is answering questions. Most of the questions seem nonsensical. And, and you can tell that. You know, the Bible is logical. I mean, it's got miracles in there, but the guy left and he went there and Jesus said, you're healed, and he got up and he walked back. It sounds like it could have really happened, you know. But then you read these things and the miracles happen. They don't even sound like, I don't know what planet they're on. It just doesn't make any sense. They're nonsensical. After talking about the destruction of matter, Jesus asked the question, or Jesus is asked, rather, by Mary this question, what is the sin of the world? You know, what caused all the main problems? What is the sin of the world? Jesus answered her and said, there is no such thing as real sin. Sin is only sin if you want it to be. Again, if you wake up and decide you're God, then it doesn't really matter, right? That's what it's saying. Uh, Later, Jesus departed. Peter asked Mary to share something with him that uh, Jesus had taught her secretly. Now, what did the church fathers say? Nobody was ever taught anything secretly. Always out in the open. Only heretics say there are secret teachings. She shared how she could see Jesus in visions, not by the spirit or like a gift of the spirit or something like that. Not like that, nor by the soul, but by using the power of her mind. She could visualize him to do this. One must be able to ascend up through the seven powers. The seven powers you must ascend through are darkness, desire, ignorance, death, desire, flesh, desire, Foolish, fleshly wisdom and wrathful wisdom. No idea what we're talking about right now. But that's the kind of thing like, you know, how do you get saved? Blue. Blue. Yeah, it's five. That's the kind of thing that these Gnostic texts do. But they're, they're cryptic and you, you keep thinking, well, maybe there's something to them. You know, when you go back in the Old Testament... And it says that that uh, Ezekiel laid on one side for 40 days and the other side for 390 days. 
you know there's something there. It's symbolism. There's a number, 40 and 390. If you can figure it out, there's got to be a prophecy there. It just sounds logical. Not blue and five. It sounds stupid. And the church fathers said this. The, the prophecies, sometimes you can't figure them out until it's time. Okay, But if, it, if you are able to figure it out, any Christian that knows the Bible well can sit down and in about five minutes figure it out. Jesus, Bethlehem, born. Got an idea. Let's go to Bethlehem and see if a baby has been born. It's not hard. You know, but Satan will counterfeit with riddles and clues that are so meaningless that it's obvious that they're not real. So if you have to sit and think of something for days and days and weeks and years, like these people that try to figure out Stonehenge, you know, and they, they calculate it. If there was something to it, we would have probably figured it out by now. And it could be. I mean, the Lord could do anything like that. But if you've, somebody's figured on it, Christians and non-Christians alike, for 50 years and you can't figure out anything specific, it's probably a trick of Satan. We're told to look for a guy whose name is six, or his name spells out 666 in Greek. That's one of the signs of the Antichrist. But we're not, that we're told specifically to do that. The church fathers said in general, looking for patterns of numbers in scripture is at best a waste of time. Look at the prophecies. Map them out. See what's going on in the world. Use the recently fulfilled prophecies to witness and go on from there. Satan will try to get anything that looks godly for you to waste your time. Got to be careful of that. Uh, so anyway, it says that once you've ascended and done all this, then you can achieve the realm of silence. Silence of the mind. Sounds like a lot of the New Age contemplative type stuff. Silence of the mind. We could go on and look at a bunch of others. There's quite a few, but I think you're getting the idea. There are churches that teach that God created Adam and Eve. They sinned. All of their descendants, that's you and me, are sinners. We're going to die and go to hell, which is a real place. Or God sent his son to die on the cross to pay for our sins if we accept that, we can become Christians and give, be given eternal life. It's based on that, not on any works, based on your belief in the Messiah. That's what Christians teach. There's another kind of church that says that's not exactly true because we reincarnate anyway. And eventually you will become a god. But if you use sorcery, you will be able to get there quicker. And all we have to do is meditate on the, on the nothingness from which we came and we'll be there because five is blue that kind of thing <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense people are scared to look at these things it's like this is a bunch of garbage it's not and they don't have any prophecy that's the first thing i look for no prophecies you know in the hadith which is a, a writings of some of the writings of islam it does try to give a prophecy that when the mahdi comes that's the antichrist Messiah guy that will destroy the Jews and make everybody Muslim. He will find the original real Bible in a cave around the Sea of Galilee somewhere. You know, because they always tell us that our Bible is messed up. Because our Bible says you've got to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God to be saved. And theirs says you can't believe that and be saved. Despite the fact that in Proverbs chapter 30 it says, Who is the Son of God? Tell me his name if you know. 
which was thousands, well, hundreds and hundreds of years, or a thousand or so before the Quran was written. And the Dead Sea Scrolls can corroborate that that's correct. So they will keep saying that, well, obviously your Bible's corrupt, or it would agree with the Quran. So that's fine. So if that's the case, then Muhammad read from the real Bible, right? So it existed in the 6th century. So somewhere between the 1st and the 6th century, there should be a ton of Bibles that agree with the Quran, if that idea is correct. Can you find me one, please? So we can begin the debate. Not to end it. That doesn't prove anything. Because anybody can write a book. But find me this book, this mystical book. The answer always comes back, well, it probably doesn't exist anymore. I'm sorry, does Allah want us to be saved? Wouldn't you guys like to convert all of us? Well, yeah, that would do it. If I looked at it and, found, and thought that was real, I'd convert in a heartbeat. So Allah wants me to convert, but he destroys the only evidence. It doesn't make any sense. By the way, prophecies in the Bible. Many, many prophecies. Well, if we had time, we could go through a bunch of these other things. But I just kind of want to recap to look at all these things. So we have a Bible. The Bible is absolutely accurate. It contains prophecies. Cults in the first century made their own fake Bibles, just like cults today make their own fake Bibles. That doesn't really mean anything if you take the received text and study it, and you can figure things out. No other religion, no other cult has anybody that's made prophecies that have been accurate. Seventh-day Adventists have tried it, Mormons have tried it, Wiccans have tried it. Nobody's accurate. Uh, the Bible is 100% accurate. The Jews are over there now fighting Hamas, the root of violence that was supposed to spring up in Gaza City, Gaza Strip, according to a prophet that wrote that several thousand years ago. And this was to happen shortly before the tribulation period. Not at its beginning, but before. There's several prophecies in there about things that happen before the tribulation starts. Obadiah's prophecy says that the Jews will take southern Lebanon and keep it and go on and... Gilead, and they would populate the Negev. That was not even humanly possible until about three years ago when they invented the new technology, the watering system, the solar watering thing that they invented. Now it's possible, and they're beginning to do exactly that. And then the refugees that uh, took off and went to Spain, the Spanish Jews, the Sephardic Jews, come back and recolonize the Negev. Uh, those are things that are happening, uh, going to happen in the near future. And so uh, it's just amazing. The, the Lebanese-Jordanian wars that are coming up, the rapture is going to happen. Understand there's a string of prophecies that Israel is going to go through. That is for them to understand and start believing. It's not connected to the rapture at all. The rapture could be tomorrow, and it wouldn't mess anything up. As far as Christian prophecies, there was about 20 throughout the centuries. The last one is the rapture, and we're ready for that one doesn't have to be tomorrow. It'll be sometime. It's the one that we're not supposed to try to guess the time frame on. But now the Israeli prophecies, there are several of those that have time frames. Dates are actually given. So we live in exciting times. So understand this. If somebody asks you about the gospel of Judas or gospel of Thomas, uh, just tell them that you're not interested in reading uh, fairy tales. You know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears is more entertaining. 
I mean, and it, it is. If you, if, you, if you want to double check me, just double check it. The demonic gospels back there is the one that's got all of these. There's just enough in there to show you that it's not scriptural. The Bible proves itself by prophecy, tells you what the gospel is. This is a totally different gospel. No proof by prophecy. We don't meditate and make ourselves gods. That doesn't even make sense. You know how messed up some of us are? Yeah, right. Okay. So anyway, let's just pray and ask the Lord to, to bless us and to guide us as we study these things. Father, we thank you for allowing us to study the word. Uh, we hope that we have a good, clear understanding that the gospel, that the Bible is exactly the way that you promised it would be, that it's here, that it has not been corrupted, and is accurate for prophecy. The fact that cults from a long time ago and still in our day make fake Bibles is irrelevant. We thank you for these things. We ask you to t teach us how to use the word to how to witness to people, all the cults and all the non-believers today. Help us to focus on your prophecies and be able to use them to teach. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.